0: All right, so we, we have been through this whole year in the book of Matthew, kind of working through what Matthew has to teach us about who Jesus is and how he interacts with the world. Uh, we've spent a ton of time talking about what it means to be part of the kingdom of God, right? We said the book of Matthew kind of, it, it, the theme, if you're going to pick a theme in the book of Matthew, it's kingdom, right? Jesus begins his preaching career, as we say every single week this week, with the phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is all around you. He goes on then to describe what that looks like and what that means. So last week we 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 came into this a new series which we are calling up into the right. So we've been breaking the book of Matthew down into mini series and we saw that sometimes following Jesus it doesn't just continue to bring your life on an up into the right kind of trajectory. There's discipline and work that we need to do along with it too as we as we are continually trying to shape ourselves to look like Jesus. And this week we're going to continue on that theme as well. We're going to continue moving into the book of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew 14. Uh, and this week is a particularly special week in the book of Matthew because it's it drives us uh, into a really important spot. So often when we read books of the Bible, like uh, any, or pretty much any book of the Bible, we like to think about it in the way that we've broken it down into chapters and verses. It's very rare for us to sit down and take the chapters and verses out and read the thing as a whole, right? Uh, but that's, the, the Bible wasn't written with chapters and verses uh, put in there. We put them in later to help us organize it. Uh, books of the Bible were written as full sections. It's a book to, you sit down and read in one sitting. So how it would happen is if when Matthew wrote his book, the intention would be that in a synagogue they would stand up front and read the entirety of the whole book of Matthew in one single sitting. Um, And when when you do that, you can see things that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. Just in case you're wondering, the book of Matthew, if you were to sit down and read the whole thing in one sitting, it takes about three hours, which you might feel like, well, that's a really long time. But put it in the context then where you don't have TV, you don't have movies, you don't have any of those things, uh, a feature film is about three hours, right? So you'd sit down and you'd experience that time together. The reason I bring that up this week is because what, you, start, what do you tend to see when you take that large view uh, of a book that way is you realize that there are themes that run all the way through it. There are points that are being made that you can miss when you break them down into their chapter and verses. So one of the things that, that, you, that, that means then is that, um, sorry, one of the things we're going to be looking at this week is, is that we're in Matthew 14, which is right smack dab in the middle of the book of Matthew. So the book of Matthew is 28 chapters, so chapter 14 is the center. And whenever we're in the center of something, it's particularly a book of Matthew that's focused on the Jewish people, uh, it it needs to make us ask a few questions. There's a Jewish literary device known as a chiasm. Maybe you've heard of it before, maybe not. Um, Chiasms are a huge part of the Bible. Um, How they work is they work similar to an X, right? So you start with with broad ideas, driving down to a center point, uh, the middle of the chiasm, and then you spin back out and you open back up again. Um, You you actually, when you know how to uh, to recognize chiasms, you see that, again, they're all over Scripture. Uh, Genesis 1 is a chiasm. The first three days create space, the second three days fill space. They're all over the place. Uh, The reason I bring that up is because the book of Matthew is also a chiasm. It drives towards this center point, which is where we are today, and then shoots out into a new space. What that means, then, is that this particular thing that we're looking at, the center of the chiasm, is the biggest point that Matthew wants you to take away. And that's where we are today. Which makes this particular sermon tricky. Because this, chapters 14 and 15 of Matthew, are so jam-packed with material, I wasn't 100% sure how to grab it all. Um, part of what we're going to do today is we're actually going to skip, we're going we're to focus on two stories that are incredibly um, well-recognized in the book of Matthew, and we're actually having to skip over another one that is equally well-recognized. The, the story of Peter walking on the water falls in between the two stories that we're going to look at today. Don't worry, we are loop, looping back to that later, but we're going to skip over it for now because I want to show you something at 10,000 feet that I think is really, really beautiful. Um, all that to be said, there's a lot of information today, and I'm just, I'm just going to call that out up front. Um, I, that, there's a lot of information today along with a ton that hit the cutting room floor. So if you still have questions, I could actually probably write two or three more sermons just on these little sections here. But I wanted to give you kind of a look at where we're going. So if you want to throw up that outline there, Chuck, this is where we're going to be. So we're going to look at the death of John the Baptist. We're going to look at Jesus' response to that. The story of the feeding of the 5,000, that's the first really popular story that most people know. And we're going to take a brief, uh, brief time to look at a Canaanite woman uh, then the story of the feeding of the 4,000, we're going to compare those two to each other and then finally end with a so what. So if you get lost in the middle, I will pull it back together a few different times. But the, the hope of looking at it from 10,000 feet here is to show you the beautiful point that Matthew's making as he drives to the center of this chiasm. So rather than talk about what we're going to talk about, let's just dive in and get to it. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew 14. That's where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 14. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase the first story that we're looking at here. Matthew 14 begins with the story of John the Baptist's death. Uh, we talked a little bit about that a few weeks ago, um, basically how the story goes. Uh, we won't read it today. I encourage you to read it on your own. As John the Baptist is in prison, uh, we, we saw when, when we looked at the story of him sending his disciples to ask Jesus if he was really the Messiah. Uh, he's in prison um, under uh, a man named Herod Antipas. Uh, not Herod the Great, not Herod that um, was, was, was reigning during Jesus' birth, his son. Uh, now, there was a weird, a lot of weird stuff happened with Herod Antipas. He stole his brother's wife, um, which was his, it, it was really, it's a messed up situation. We'll just say that. And in that messed up situation, Herod had imprisoned John and then eventually ends up beheading him in that space. So we see that first. That that happens um, at the very beginning of Matthew 14. So it's a brutal and horrible death of John the Baptist in that particular space. But we're going to skip over that story for now, but you need to know that that's just happened when we move into Matthew 14, 12. Which says, John's disciples came and took his body, his disciples, him being John the Baptist. Then they went and told Jesus. So that sets the stage for where we're at. Now remember, John the Baptist and Jesus are cousins. They're, they're close to each other. They grew up together. They did ministry together. John actually baptized Jesus uh, and proclaimed him to be the Messiah. So these two people are, are genuinely close in their relationship. And now Jesus, now John has just been beheaded in a really, really nasty way and Jesus has just heard about that. He, he's been told what happened. And so it says when Jesus heard what happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. So if you put yourself in Jesus' shoes for a second, you're teaching and there obviously are a bunch of people around you who are listening uh, and up comes John's disciples to tell you how he died, which again, if you read the story, it was horrific. He was beheaded. How do you feel in that particular moment? You're probably overwhelmed with grief, right? Probably, we, you probably you probably don't want to be around a whole crowd of people anymore. I know I wouldn't want to be. Uh, and so, what is that's probably based on the scripture we see here too. How Jesus felt as well. He hears about John's death and he's he's moved by it. And so, what does he want to do? He actually says, when he heard what happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. He reacted like we all would. Said, hey, I need a few minutes for myself. I need a few minutes to process this. I need a few minutes to, to really let it sink in um, what I've just heard about my cousin John. Now, when he says he goes out privately, uh, privately would still be bringing the 12 disciples along with him. So him and the 12 get in the boat and they, they head out. Now, uh, what, we, what, the, what the scripture goes on to tell us then is that he gets in the boat to go be by himself and the crowds that were there listening to him decide, hey, we'll just follow him. Right? Now you might be wondering how that works. If, I showed this picture last week. Uh, this is the Sea of Galilee, right? Uh, so you can, you can imagine then if you're, if you're looking at the Sea of Galilee, um, how easy it would be to follow someone who's just trying to jet across the lake, right? It's not an easy walk, but let's say if you know, on the bottom side of this picture, that's where they launch from, we'll say, and he's going to the other side over there, you could see how it would be pretty easy to just keep going around the edge of the lake to get to where he is. And you actually might be able to do it faster than a boat which we see is the case in this particular story, too. And so, the, the crowd ends up following Jesus. Um, and when, when they land on the other side, it, this is what the scripture says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, which means they followed him around the entire thing, he lands on the other side. Remember, he went there to be alone and when he gets there, everybody else is already there. Now, I don't know about you, if my intention was, I got to imagine like when he left, he probably said, hey guys, I need a minute or something like that, who knows what he says. If I got to the other side and they were all there, I don't know if my reaction would be that pleasant. I don't know about you, right? I'd go, what are you guys doing? Literally, I got on this boat to not be by you and there you are, right? I think it would, actually my response would probably be of frustration or of annoyance because I would want, I went to have time alone and clearly now I don't have it. But look at Jesus' response. It's, I think it's beautiful. It's just totally different than what would be, would be for me. When he landed, he saw a large, large crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Uh, I think that's just a beautiful, beautiful image of who Jesus is. He goes to be alone, he's, he's in pain, he's, he's, in so, he's, he's sorrowful because his cousin has just died. And when he gets to the other side, he's not able to do the thing he wanted to do, but rather than go inward and feel bad for himself for not getting the time he needed to to reflect, he turns that sorrow into compassion for the people who are there. N.T. Wright actually says it this way. He says he translates his sorrow over John, and perhaps his sorrow for what lay ahead for himself, into sorrow for them. Before the outward and visible works of power healing healing is six comes the inward and invisible work of power in which Jesus transforms his own feelings into love for those who are in need. I just think that's a beautiful depiction of who Jesus is. He takes his sorrow and actually uses that fuel to care for other people. It's just a great example for all of us. But let's keep going. I, uh, at this point, I encourage you to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples as well. They've heard John's disciples. They know that Jesus wants to reflect. They know that he went to be alone. He, they see these crowds and they actually get to see the, the compassion that he has for them. And so Jesus then goes and heals the sick. He teaches. He does all of those things. And then nighttime comes. So Matthew 14:15, As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the village and buy, fo- buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We only have have five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Now this part of the story is just as amazing as the first part, I think. The disciples realized that the people following Jesus were most likely very poor. There's a few cues for how we can know that. One, uh, they didn't travel with any supplies. right? Most likely because they didn't have much. Right? They, they had to run around the lake to get to Jesus, and they didn't take anything along with them, right? So the disciples actually see that, and they're concerned with these people, people's well-being. I think the disciples are actually saying, hey, these people are going to need to eat. We can't feed them here, they don't think, and so let's send them out to go get some food. They didn't bring any along, which is actually it's a bad idea. You should bring food along. Clearly, the disciples had, right? Now, remember, Jesus was trying to go somewhere alone. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't around any big cities. He, they're in the wilderness. They're, in, they're far away from where any other people would be. <clears throat> and so the disciples rightly really, right, realized if these people are going to get, have a place to stay tonight and have something to eat, they need to get going. Right? It's because it's, it, this terrain around the Sea of Galilee there is all rocky, so it's incredibly difficult to walk in the dark. Right? If you were trying to go around the lake, in the, in the daytime it would be one thing— um, but if you're trying to walk in there at night, there almost, almost no paths are just flat, right? Almost everything's got rocks and different things in there. So, so, so the disciples are saying, it's getting close to evening. We've got to send these people away. Jesus says, don't send them away. Actually, why don't you feed them? And the disciples say, we can't. We only have a few loaves and a few fish. I mean, you would have to assume that they assume that would kind of be the end of the discussion. We only have a little bit to feed them. We can't actually do it. But this is what happens next. Jesus says, Bring bring them here to me, that being the loaves and fish. He directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now, I want to point out, this is a story that you probably have heard before, and I want to point out a bunch of details that are in this story that, that I think actually make it more beautiful than, than we often realize. First, I want to point out the numbers. Throughout Matthew's story, he's been telling a, this story, he's been telling a secondary story as well. Throughout the, the book of Matthew, he's been telling a second story, second, secondary story as well. We actually looked at it way, way, way back in January. We talked about how Matthew sets Jesus up to be the new Moses. That, in, that often the ministry life of Jesus parallel, parallels the wilderness journey of the Israelites. And we actually have that today as well. We showed how Matthew is showing how Jesus, like Moses, is going to bring the Israelites into a new kind of promised land. And this is on display in a huge way in this particular story. Just, just the details alone will bring you to the story that we're thinking about, right? What do we have? We have a large group of Israelites, a large group of Jewish people, in the wilderness who are hungry for food. Where's the last time you heard a story like that? Right, you heard it while they were wandering in the wilderness, right? The Israelites are in, a group of Israelite people are in the wilderness, the desert after the Red Sea. and They're hungry. Uh, we, that stage is already set in a similar kind of way. Now, how many loaves and fish do we have? We have five loaves and two fish, which Jesus says is enough to satisfy all of these people. In the wilderness, when, when they're met with food from heaven, manna, right, that's the story we we're talking about. We're also told the story of God giving the law at Sinai, which is the five books of the Torah and the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, right? So we already are drawing us into this place in the wilderness where we're supposed to see what's happening right now is similar to the, what happened after the Exodus. The disciples then feed all of the people with these five loaves and two fish, with the Torah and the tablets. They feed the people all of these things. And how many baskets are left over? Twelve, right? Which immediately brings our minds to a space of saying, how many tribes are there of Israel? There are twelve, right? This is a story that's supposed to bring us back into the wilderness in which God fed his people there, in which he he upheld his covenant commitment to Israel. We're supposed to be in that spot. What Jesus is doing here is he's recreating that moment in a really, really beautiful way. He shows us that the Bible all fits together in this overarching story. But I want to show you something else as well. When you focused on the disciples, we see in this story that the disciples are beginning to view the world through the lenses of Jesus. They see this group of people. They could have been equally annoyed, as maybe you or I would be, that, we, hey, we were trying to go off to a solitary place, but now you're all here. But they actually view them with compassion like Jesus did. They say, these people need food and we want to make sure that they have a chance to get some. So what we see is we see that we're supposed to be thinking of how God provided for them in the wilderness before. But in this particular story, there's a little bit of a difference. In the story, in the, the first story in the wilderness, when the, when the Israelites cry out and they say, we need food, God says, okay, I'll give you some. And what does he do? He sends them manna, right, which just shows up every morning on the ground. This time, God, through Jesus, is going uh, to say, I will feed you again. But he doesn't feed them directly, does he? Sure, Jesus is the one who who multiplies the fish and the loaves, but then what does he do with it? He gives it to the disciples to give to the people, right? It's a a different, it's a small detail, but it's different than the first time. The disciples want people to be fed, but they believe that they don't have enough to do it. And Based on the world's perspective, they're right. Five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000, probably closer to 10,000 because we don't count the women and children in this one. That's barely anything. It's barely a drop in the bucket. But Jesus asked them to bring the little that they had, which we also need to realize he's asking them to sacrifice, right? They have five loaves and two fish for what? For their own dinner, right? That's why they have it. They brought it for them. They, they've actually planned ahead. If we're going to go on a journey, I have to bring food to eat. So five loaves and two fish probably feeds the disciples and Jesus, and that's what they brought it for. Jesus says, hey, I'm going to need that, which means that they have to trust that whatever he's going to do with it, they still get to get dinner as well, right? But Jesus takes that little bit. He breaks it. He blesses it so that, it, that the little that they gave could become enough to feed everyone. Now this part is, I think, brilliant as well. Because us living now, being able to look back at the entirety of the story, we realize that Matthew is actually foreshadowing to a different event here. We had in part of this chiasm where he's asking you to look back to, the, to, the Israel, to Israel in the Old Testament. But then we have this thing that where God doesn't distribute it himself, he gives it to the disciples, but, and then Matthew asks us to look forward to something else. Because when it says that Jesus blesses it, looks up to heaven and breaks it, There's there's another section in Matthew that sounds very, very similar to that. It's Matthew 26, 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks to it or blessed it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, for this is my body. What Matthew's doing here is absolutely brilliant. Remember how we said that this is in the middle, that Jesus is the new Moses. And so Matthew has shown us so many comparisons through the entire book, how Jesus functions it like Moses. But now the story shifts forward. For the first time, in the first story, God feeds people with manna. This time he feeds them through the disciples. He's multiplying the little they have to be more than enough to have all of these people experience actual physical tastes of the kingdom of heaven. It's a pretty cool part of this story. But it's only the first part. So I want you to hold on to that idea that we have Jesus in, the, in his sorrow having compassion on this large group of people who, who very much like Israel is hungry in the wilderness where God is again going to bless them through the breaking of bread but in the future breaking of his body and then have them experience the kingdom through the disciples' sacrifice and offer and gift to them. So there is a story in between shortly after this story there's the walking of water, on Peter. We're skipping that for now. Let's jump ahead to Matthew 15. Jesus says, "Leaving that place, the place being uh, Galilee, right there." Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, "Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terrible, terribly." Chuck, if we can throw up that map, so we where we were was down by the Sea of Galilee. You see that in the bottom right part of the map there. Jesus leaves that region and heads to the, to the two cities, or in between the two cities to the north there, Tyre and Sidon. Now that shift is dramatic. Um, geographically, it's not that far away. I get that. Um, culturally, we have moved into a new world. Uh, the area that in which Jesus was bef- in the first story we looked at, in the feeding of the 5,000, was a very Jewish area. It's very likely that everybody he was talking to in that first story, most of the people he was talking to in that first story, were Jewish people. He then moves out of a Jewish region to these two cities up here on the left, which is an incredibly Roman or Greek part of the world. Uh, Tyre and Sidon were were Greek cities, uh, meaning the people he's going to meet next are going to be all Greek. And we kind of see that in this story as well. Because Matthew tells us that when he is in this particular region here, it says a Canaanite woman came out to meet him. Now this is an interesting little detail that it's so easy to miss when we don't understand, because we don't come from a Jewish context. The fact that Matthew names this woman as a Canaanite woman is saying something else besides just where she comes from. Now, if you don't know the story of Israel and Canaan, uh, first, Canaan is, is Israel's biggest enemy, right? So when they come out of Israel, or come out of Egypt, I'm sorry, into Israel, the people that they need to get out of there, the people who are already living there, are the Canaanites, right? If you remember the story of Joshua and Caleb, they go and see the Canaanites, and they're like, "These guys are giants; we can't beat them." Uh, that's who we're talking about here. Canaan is known in the Israelite mind as one of their one of their mo- one of the most hated enemies, right? They're preventing them from the Promised Land. But Canaan's more than that as well. See, Canaan is a descendant of Noah's son Ham. Now, if you remember the flood story, which you might not, back, well, you might remember the flood story, but not necessarily all the things that happen afterwards. After the flood, um, Noah plants a vineyard. He, gets, he drinks too much and passes out. Maybe you remember that story. And one of, his son makes, one of his sons makes fun of him. The son that makes fun of him is Ham. And so, as a result, then Noah actually curses Canaan, his son. Right? It's, it, we see it here in Genesis 10. Right, says the sons of Ham, or curses them, and then the sons of Ham, Cush, um, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn of the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Arkites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamlethites. Later, Canaanites' clan scattered, and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon. So we have, so the sons of, so, so Canaan is the son of Ham. Ham has a number of sons as well. Later on, when Israel is coming into Israel, God gives them clear instructions on what they're supposed to do in order to establish themselves in the Promised Land. We see that in Deuteronomy 7. It says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives, you out, out, drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Prezerites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, Then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. If we compare the two lists that we have, the sons of Canaan are the same as these tribes that we see that they're supposed to destroy here in Deuteronomy, right? They're the same thing. These seven tribes are considered to be the seven tribes of Canaan. So that's a big deal for a couple reasons. One, just remember seven. We'll talk about that in a minute. Two, Because when Israel actually enters into the promised land, they actually fulfill this part of what God asked them to do. Meaning, those seven tribes were destroyed. Meaning what? During the time of Jesus, Canaan doesn't actually exist. It existed when they entered into the promised land, but not now. There is no Canaan, so you shouldn't actually then be able to have a Canaanite woman. Now, people who are descendants of the Canaanites might still live, but they're going to be known as different things. And actually, in the book of Mark and Luke, they refer to the woman as a Phoenician, because they realize Canaan doesn't exist. You can't have a Canaanite woman, which means Matthew's making another point here. By the way, this is the only place in the entire New Testament where someone is referred to as a Canaanite in this way. So there's clearly something else going on. Well, the story goes on. The woman's calling out after Jesus, and what does he do? Matthew 15:23. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came and urged him, "Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us." He answered, "I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel." It's a weird, weird part of the story. This, this what Matthew calls a Canaanite woman, comes out chasing Jesus down, calling after him, and he ignores her. She's got to be a weird thing, right? Somebody's yelling out after you, and, the, and he just keeps walking. He doesn't say anything. She's clearly making a big enough impact that the disciples are starting to get really uncomfortable because uh, they're like, Jesus, you hear this? Can we do something about this? She did, but she persists and she keeps calling and calling. Finally, Jesus does turn. Matthew 15:25. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. This is, a, this is probably a passage that's made you uncomfortable before has me. It's a weird one, right? Is Jesus calling this woman a dog? Because that feels really derogatory, doesn't it? And I get it, that, that this, this particular metaphor doesn't hit our ears the right way. But let me point out a couple things. He's not. Jesus isn't actually insulting this woman for two reasons. First, he's saying that the work that he was doing at this particular time, and remember we're in a chiasm in Matthew 2, was for uh, the, the covenant people of Israel. The time of the new covenant was coming, but it isn't here yet. So the, so the work that Jesus has to do right now is for the covenant people of Israel. Second, Jesus uses a word that's very different from a wild dog, which would have been a derogatory statement in the ancient world too. Wild dogs were just scavengers, they're dirty, all of those things. But he uses the Greek word for little dog, which was usually, which was usually reserved for like a household pet, right? Someone you, someone you love. Now I understand that metaphor still might be hitting you a little weird, I get that. Um, it's probably not one, guys, you should use in your wives. Um, but, but, it is, but it is very different uh, from calling her a, just a dog, like an animal. That's not how it's supposed to be like. So he goes on in Matthew 15:27, says, Yes, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. When we understand the context, what Jesus is saying to this, to this woman is, I've been, I've been given the mission to care for the Jewish people right now. It wouldn't be right for me then to take what was meant for them and give it to you. Right? He, 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 essentially what he's saying is you don't feed the pets, your pets with the food that's meant for your children. Right? He's not meaning to put her down. He's just giving her an example of something that we can relate to. If I only have enough food, if, I, if, if I'm limited in the food that I have, I feed my kids first and my pets second, correct? Now, again, I get it. The metaphor still might not be hitting well, but it would have hit differently in that time. Uh, You'll just have to trust me on that. But what we see here, though, is that the woman isn't deterred. She says, yes, I understand. She actually accepts the premise. She's not insulted by it, which matters, right? But then she makes an amazing statement. She says, even the dogs get the crumbs. What, What she's saying there is, I don't actually need a full serving. I don't don't need a full serving. Whatever you have left over, whatever whatever was going to be wasted, that's plenty. When you really sit with that for a minute, you realize how bold that statement of faith is. That she trusts that even if I get the littlest, tiniest bit of Jesus, that's going to be enough to do what I need it to do. It's going to be enough to heal her daughter, right? She desperately wants her daughter healed. That's the goal. And she believes that a crumb would do that. And all of a sudden, we realize then why Jesus says, wow, that's some faith. You don't need a full portion of what I have, just the teeniest, tiniest little bit, and you believe that she'll be healed. Okay, there you go. It's even more amazing when you recognize, and we don't have time to break this all down, that she, that she lives somewhere between Tyre and Sidon, meaning that there is, there, is the, there is a giant temple to one of the ancient pagan healing gods within three miles of her. She says, I'm not interested in those. This guy's crumbs are better than that. It's an amazing statement of faith. So we have all of those pieces. Now, I get that that's already a ton of information. I told you there's a lot of information today. But we have one more story we need to pull this all together. So, where have we been already? John the Baptist has been killed, and we see how that affects Jesus. He wants to get out to his own space. People follow him and we see that his sorrow is then turned towards outward compassion for those he loves. We see the kingdom come, that we have a group of people in the wilderness who are hungry and God feeds them again. But this time he does it differently. He feeds them again through the disciples. And he feeds the people of Israel because in the first story that's what we have. And then finally we get to this space in which we see the faith of a Canaanite woman, even though Canaan doesn't exist. So what point is Matthew making? Well, we need the final piece for that. Matthew 15:29. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute and many others, and laid them at his feet. And he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw this: The mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking and the blind seeing. and they praised the God of Israel. So we're moving locations again. So if we can throw up the next map here. We were up there in Tyre and Sidon. Jesus comes down and then it's hard to see because of the cage there, but the Decapolis, he's down in that region right there. So he, um, <clears throat> there, are, there are a number of places that help us to understand. And this passage doesn't say it directly. This passage does infer, though, that he's in a Greek region, right? Because when, after he heals everybody, what do the people do? They praise the God of Israel, meaning you don't say that when you're already talking to Israelites. You're talking to non-Israelites, right? And so Jesus is in the Decapolis now. He's come from the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is a Greek area. The Decapolis is, is ten Greek cities. They're, they're, they're totally Greek in, that, in their culture in that particular space. He's there now, meaning the people that are around him are also Greek. So we're in a, little bit, we're in a similar spot to where we were in the first story. We have a crowd of people in the wilderness But in the first story, they were all Jewish. In the second story, they're all Greek. What happens? Jesus called his disciples and said to him, I have compassion for these people. They've been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? I always think that's funny. Now, it's easy for us, I suppose, to think, well, Wait a minute, we're just a couple of stories apart. Don't you remember what happened last time? I still kind of think that, but we've got to realize there's more time in between these stories than just the few seconds it takes to read us the stories. But we'll skip over that for now. But what we have here is we have a group of Greeks who've traveled out to see Jesus and they've been with him for three days, which is a significantly long time, obviously, right? Now, and now they're out of food. Now, we, maybe they brought some along for the first few days, but now they're out. And so Jesus wants to feed them again. And so he asked, "How many loaves do you have?" Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they turned to and in and they, and they turn to the people. We have that same imagery that we had from Matthew 26 again. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was four thousand men, besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into a boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. So this is really cool. If you're, especially if you're kind of a Bible nerd like I am, I actually geeked out a lot in this section. Like I said, there a lot could fit, hit the floor, but stick with me on this one. In our first story, Jesus' love for the hurting is poured out over the people of Israel, even the height of his sorrow. The love of God for his people is shown through the provision of food in the wilderness, mirroring the wilderness of Moses. We already said that. But this time was different. The kingdom came and though the disciples giving the little bit they had was multiplied so that everyone could experience the kingdom in that way. Jesus then moves out of a Jewish region into two Greek regions where he meets a woman who Matthew identifies as a Canaanite woman, even though Canaan doesn't exist anymore. Her faith is astounding. And she experiences the kingdom directly through Jesus in a powerful way. Jesus is now in the Decapolis, and there are crowds of people, there are Greek people, non-Jewish people, who now need the kingdom to break through into their lives as well. And so we seemingly have a repeat of the first story, but with a few differences again. Once again, we have our disciples who are willing to sacrifice their own dinner, Give the little bit they have to bless those around them. But the numbers are different this time, aren't they? And that matters. We talked last time about how the 12s mattered, or the 5 and the 2 mattered. This time it's different. This time, what what number do we see run over and over and over again in this story? Seven, right? It's an important number in the Bible. So if, if, if in the first story we were trying to drive back to right after the Exodus, if this time we're, we're, we're talking about the number seven, where, where, where does Matthew want our minds to go this time? Anybody got a guess? Creation. Good work. First time we see seven in the Bible is at the end of creation. We're driving back before the Exodus this, this time. We're driving back all the way to the beginning in which God's, God walks with Adam, which is the representation of all people in that way, Right? We also have 4,000 people at this time, and Matthew's making a point there as well. Seven is the number of completion, and in the Greek mindset, four would be the number of what? Corners you have in the world, right? Four corners of the earth. So we have all people from all places is the symbolism in those numbers. Matthew's now has brought us back to the beginning, before the fall, before the flood, before the curse on Cam and Canaan, before all of that. So flowing out of the story of the Canaanite woman, where we saw the curse, uh, flowing out of the story of the Canaanite woman, where we saw the curse of Noah, do you remember how many tribes there were in that one? Seven, right? And that's where the story all comes back together. Now we talked about chiasms, right? Where we, go, we start in this big space that dives down to this, 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 this the key point in the book and then we start heading back out again. This moment, this space here, is where we make that turn. Matthew's just made that turn. He, he, we, saw the kingdom of, we saw the kingdom come again to Israel, like when they were wandering in the desert. But it comes through the, the disciples this time. Their small sacrifice was multiplied to feel, feed thousands of Jews. But then the story doesn't stop there. It drives to that point where, where Matthew was saying, hey, again, this is the faithfulness of God on display for the covenant people. But then the chiasm turns and starts heading back out. The blessing of God then overflows off the table of Israel, coming even to Canaan itself. What Matthew is saying is Canaan doesn't exist, but what the point he's making is, is that this blessing that we just saw in the feeding of the 5,000s is now overpouring, overflowing off of the table to even bless Canaan. That God's blessing that was a provision that we saw for the Israelites in the wilderness is now for everyone. And so the disciples are asked to sacrifice again. This time for Greeks. And they do. And once again, the kingdom comes. Not just feeding the Jews this time, but the entire world. God's blessing comes to this point in which he says, I have been faithful to the covenant that I established long ago. The kingdom will continue to break in like it did in the old days. But it's not just for Israel anymore. It will overflow from that space into Canaan, to the completion of the seven to the four corners of the earth. It's a beautiful overarching chiasm in the book of Matthew that, turn, that makes, the, it's the center of the book of Matthew uh, and he very intentionally puts it in that space to show that we're not just talking about Israel anymore but the mission and, and call of the kingdom is for all people. And that just scratches the surface of the depth that's in this particular section. Matthew puts this in the center of his chiasm, because he's been driving towards this point the whole time. Jesus begins by declaring in the book of Matthew, repent for the kingdom of heaven is all around you. He teaches then what it looks like to live inside that kingdom. There are certain things that we do that are compatible with the kingdom, that bring it to earth in a special way, and certain things that don't. It's the Sermon on the Mount. He then teaches us what the kingdom is like, how great it is, how valuable it is, what what, what kind of life it can bring. All driving to this point here, where he gives the mission of the kingdom. And he gives it to the disciples and to us. He says, this kingdom experience is amazing and I want to invite you all into it. And when I do, I want you to take the little that you have, whatever it might be, and turn it outward so that the world can be blessed we spent months looking at the teachings of Jesus, looking at the beauty that the kingdom can bring to our lives. And Jesus then is inviting you to experience the kingdom, but then challenging you to let go of the areas in your life in which which you're resisting for whatever reason. This week, though, Jesus invites you to join him in sharing the kingdom with everyone around us. Which can feel incredibly intimidating, can't it? If I learned anything about church culture is that words like evangelism are the scariest. Who's with me on that one? Everybody's just smiling. You don't even want to raise your hand. It's intimidating, right? I get it. It can feel incredibly intimidating if we're trying to think about it that way. The mission of of Jesus is to go out and share the kingdom with all people, right? So we stand here this morning. It can feel like as we look out at the world, it's filled with people who don't know the good news of the kingdom or what uh, what the good of kingdom life can bring to them. It feels a bit overwhelming, honestly. It feels like we might not be equipped. We might not have all the answers. We might, not, we might not know how to interact with people. We don't know how to engage a world that may be even resistant. It almost feels like you're looking over a crowd of starving people with just a few loaves and a couple fish, right? All of a sudden, you're like, okay, maybe I get where the disciples were coming from when they forgot. See, we're invited into the mission of the kingdom. We're invited to share what we've experienced with the world around us. And if you're sitting here this morning feeling like, well, I don't have anything to offer, or I have very little to offer, that's the point that Matthew's making here. Kingdom math is different than the rest of the world math. A faithful offering of a little is multiplied to have a massively disproportionate impact on the world. Whatever you have, whatever experience you have with the kingdom or whatever, with, with that life, if you're willing to bring it back to Jesus and say, all I've got is one loaf, he says, that should be fine. Let's make something out of it. The entirety of the book of Matthew drives towards, th- towards this key moment. Now we're going to see the kingdom begin to expand for the rest of the book of Matthew through the death and resurrection of Jesus in which they are finally sent out to the entire world to to bless everybody and baptize them in that way. But the crux of the mission rests right at this particular point, that God's desire is for each of us to experience the kingdom like the Israelites did in the wilderness. And whether you're Jew or Greek or whatever it may be, and none of, probably none, either of those things, Jew or Gentile, the point is that 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 blessing and promise is given for you and so the invitation out of that space then is to be like the disciples and to bring whatever faithful offering we have and it may even be a sacrifice might be your dinner for tonight so that God can take it and multiply it and the kingdom can expand to the four corners of the world it's it's a beautifully complex and layered and wonderful declaration of what kingdom is Which then brings us to the invitation this week. Are we willing to join Jesus on this mission? Because it requires us to do some of the things that were similar to the disciples. One, take inventory of what we have. How many loaves and fish do you have? Do you even know? Have you even asked yourself? What do you have to offer to the kingdom? It it doesn't have to be big. It could be really little. Maybe it's just your witness Right, what, is a, what is a witness? So evangelism can feel really, really intimidating because we don't understand what witness is. A witness is simple. It's saying, I experienced some things and I want to tell you about it. Right, if, I call somebody, if I call a witness to the stand, what do they do? They share their experience with me. These are the things I saw or experienced. That's all witnessing is. And maybe that's what you have to bring to the kingdom. They say, hey, I don't even know how to explain it all, but I've experienced the kingdom life in these ways. I'll tell you I've. The, the, that may seem really, really small to you. It may seem like a, just one fish. But those stories are the most impactful thing on the kingdom, I think. Those little offerings of saying, hey, I want to share this experience with you. I don't even, might not even be able to process it often are the thing that somebody will hook onto. When you're talking about how did someone come to Christ or experience the kingdom life, it's very, very, very rarely somebody said, well, somebody presented to me a really compelling argument. Or we debated and they won. And I was like, okay. Right? Far more often, it's like, I met this person who told me this story, and I experienced what they experienced. So maybe it's your witness. Maybe it's as simple as a kind word of life. Actually, I was just talking this morning on that, and I actually had it written down before that story, so that's pretty crazy, huh? So often, uh, darkness is weak in the face of light. We can, we can, maybe, maybe, you've, maybe you've experienced that, that yourself where you're sitting in this particular space and it feels like the world around you is just dark. It feels like there's nobody out there for you, that nobody's on your side, that, that everything is oppressive and pushing down on you. And then somebody speaks one kind word and what happens? The entire perspective changes, doesn't it? That little bit of light pushes back the darkness and, and the impact is disproportionately huge, isn't it? Maybe that's what you have to bring this morning is a kind word in someone's life or a word of affirmation or or encouragement. Maybe it's your resources. Maybe God has blessed you with ten talents. You have resources. Maybe he's asking you to invest them in the kingdom in one way or another. It could also be your skills. Maybe you're good at building things or fixing things or whatever that may be. I don't know. There are a hundred different things it could possibly be. But the first step, like the disciples, is to take inventory of what do I have. That's what Jesus asked, right? What do we have? They say we have five loaves and two fish. What do you have? The disciples in this case assumed that it wouldn't be enough. And Jesus says it's not on its own. But inside the resurrection, he broke it, right? Inside the resurrection, it's multiplied to be disproportionately large. And so the challenge today is, one, to take inventory of what you have, but then also to offer it up to Jesus, even if that requires a little bit of sacrifice. Before the first time in particular, the disciples didn't know if they were going to eat. Did we just give away our five loaves and two fish? Are we going to have, I I can't imagine how this is going to work, and maybe I don't get dinner tonight. That happens sometimes. But because of that sacrifice, they got to experience the kingdom in a new way, along with everyone else around them. Challenge is twofold: What do you have to offer? What do you have to bring to the kingdom, and how will you see it multiply? The book of Matthew drives to this point because it's the call of the church. It's what we're here for, is it's to, it's to have God meet us with His life-changing, world-changing uh, um, blessing of the covenant, and then to have us take that, turn it outward towards the rest of the world to invite them into that same space. If we were to faithfully give God even the smallest little bits, the impact I think that we'd have in this world would blow us away. So often, small acts of faithfulness change everything. And I think in this world right now, for this space right now, we need that more than we ever have. To speak little breaths of life into this world would change everything. So what the ask of Matthew, the ask of me this morning, is for us to join together to show the world what it can look like to follow Jesus in that way. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you. <clears throat> thank you for your continued faithfulness throughout history. Lord, we saw it in the Old Testament. We saw you meet the Israelite people over and over and over again with your amazing blessing. God, like in Matthew, we see though that that blessing persisted through time, which is wonderful, but was never meant to be kept there. That your love overflows from your people to everyone else around them. And Lord, we pray that we can be those kinds of people. That like the disciples, we can begin to view the world through your lenses to have compassion on the people around us, even if they're in a really inconvenient spot for us. God, help us to see what we do have to bring to the table. Each of us has something, some of it big, some of it small, and yet you can use every single piece. Give us the courage to give them to you so that we can see it multiplied and the impact of the kingdom spread to the four corners of the world. Amen.